Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. My friend, how are you feeling today? Yes, I ask this question probably every week. I know, I know. <laughs> it's really important that we can, one, tune into what's going on inside of us. There's an internal wisdom and we weren't taught anything about emotions. <laughs> and so to be able to develop an emotional vocabulary, have an emotional language is so, so important because then when you can, you know, identify it and label it and understand it, then you can figure out how to move through it instead of being stuck in it. So that's why I'm asking this question of how are you feeling? I often ask this when I get on a call with a client, how are you feeling? And not, oh, great or happy, but like, really, how are you feeling? And if you are struggling with being able to identify it, that's okay. I've got you. There's a link in the show notes and you can download the mindset practice, which has a feelings menu. And the reason I call it a feelings menu is when I go to my favorite restaurant, Cafe Bernardo, I look at the menu <laughs> And now I know what is available for order instead of like walking in and saying, oh, well, this is what I would like. Like you can only order what they're cooking, right? And so because we, we don't have that emotional vocabulary and that connection, it's really great to start with a menu and it's a small menu. There's way more feelings in this, but that can be overwhelming and we could shut down. So it's a small menu for you to get started. I invite you to download it and print it out and have it. Or if you order the mindset journal, you get these nice little feeling menu cards, which are great. You can put in your books as bookmarkers. You can carry it around. So my friend, how are you feeling? And I am feeling excited because I have a great show for you where I'm starting a new series called The Brave Women. And I'm interviewing women who I believe are brave, who I want to share their stories with you so that you can look at their stories through the window of possibility and get inspired or grab some of the nuggets of what they do or how they say something or how they live and apply it to your own life. Take that inspiration and apply it because that's where the change comes is when we apply things. So my first guest is a friend of mine. She's a civil rights attorney and she's going to go in and explain what she does. And we're going to talk about how she has courage and in what ways does she use courage in the work that she does? Because I've been talking a lot with clients about what do they need to do to fill themselves up so they can be courageous in their life. We all need courage in our life. And what is it that you need to do to fuel yourself so that you can be courageous in your life? After my interview with her, I'll circle back with you. Roberta, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Corinne. So I'm really glad to have you here for my Brave Women series. And I really wanted to showcase, and you're the first of many that are going to be coming on, about, we don't, I don't think we we correlate women and bravery together. And I know I didn't because when I think of bravery, <laughs> do you remember the movie Braveheart, the Mel Gibson movie? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where he's like running down the hill and they're going to battle. <laughs> right. That's, right. That's always what I have put the meaning of bravery to. And I have had to really work on changing that and think about how am I brave and how am I courageous? And the other thing is that bravery is my number one value, which I had a bunch of resistance to, but it actually is because that's what gets me through doing a lot of stuff, including this podcast. So I wanted to talk about bravery and women and showcase women's stories Because one of the things that I really believe is that when we can see what is possible for somebody else, it can give us insights and nuggets to say, oh, what can I take from that and then apply to my own life? While you're a lawyer, other people may not be lawyers, but what part of your stories can inspire them or go, hey, that's a way to think about it or give them permission to do it differently, right? To do it their way. So. Why don't you first tell everybody what it is that you do professionally? Sure. So I'm a special education attorney. Some people refer to us as civil rights attorney in the area of education of students with disabilities. Essentially, what I break it down to is I sue school districts for services for a student who has a disability. Primarily, those students have an IEP, so an Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. They're eligible for those services. They have an entitlement to a free appropriate public education. And I help support their families and the student through getting services, one, at the basic IEP level meeting, which happens in school districts, in public school sites across the state, across the country every day. And when those meetings break down and there's no agreement, then I represent the student and their family through the administrative process. And then if that does not come out in a positive way or with a positive result, I will appeal into federal court. That's the big picture of what I do, the very wordy description of what I do. I like to break it down much more simply. I help parents who have a child with a disability get appropriate services for their student. That's like the basic, my my sense of the basic way. And I really feel like I am helping these parents. It's a lot of information. And even sometimes when I sit down and think about it myself, I realize, wow, I just have a bunch of information in my head most people don't have. And so being able to help a family navigate through this system when they might not have all the information I do is a critical part of my job. Well, and I would imagine, and I, and I know this because I have a special needs child. but <laughs> I always forget that. <laughs> but you know, in in working with so many parents, there can be so much shame and, you know, an exhaustion because they too are having to be courageous to advocate for their child. And the systems are, you know, it's, it's so much easier to say no than to say yes. And so I would imagine the parents that are coming to you are frustrated, exhausted, angry, a whole bunch of that stuff. So it's funny you describe it in that way. Because absolutely, yes, I'll say yes, with a resounding yes. Most people don't call me because they're happy, which is <laughs> the hard part of my job. And I meet some incredible families and I think, oh my gosh, I would just love to go out and have a coffee or a drink with you. But no, I'm your attorney. Okay. And this is how I've met you. But parents, by and large, call me 
when they're frustrated. So I think you can appreciate this. Like as a person, as Roberta, I'll put up with a lot of stuff and I'll let people do or say, or make, you know, I'll end up feeling a certain way, but I'll let people kind of attack me quite a bit. But if you come after my daughter, that's a different story. And so you have these families who might've trusted the public school system, trusted their kindergarten teacher. Maybe they were a teacher or their parents were teachers. And so there's this reverence that they provide to the public school system. And then they realize you just failed my kid and not just like, Hey, my kid got a poor grade on a test, but my child has poor social skills and you failed to address those for the last four years. And the anger that families have is pretty significant. They are embarrassed. They didn't do something sooner. They worry. I think you would use the word shame. I'll say Mm -hmm. worry that if other people knew about what was going on with my kid, they wouldn't let their kids come over to our house. So I'm not going to tell people about my experience because I'm afraid of what other people are going to say. Or the other kind of shame or embarrassment is my child, because they have autism, requires intensive services. And that's a heck of a lot more expensive than my daughter, who just attends public school. She goes to school. She is neither entitled nor needs additional support. And so I think parents struggle and come to me because they're worried about what other people will think about, one, what their child might be doing, and then two, how expensive it may be. And when you have tightening budgets and pandemics hitting and you're thinking, but my kid really is struggling They don't know where to turn, and so they call me. So to answer your question, yes, I I see parents coming to me with all of those feelings, with all of the feels, as people would like to say, and they come to me to help figure out what can I do with it? Am I reasonable? Am I rational? Or am I just off my rocker and you just need to tell me, calm down, it's going to be, you know, calm down, Your, your district's doing fine, just keep working with your team. And just again, rarely do I have a family call me because they're happy. I think of this more, it's more salient to me when I have a family I might have helped and then they don't need me for a couple years. And then an email pops up saying, hey, we need to get back in touch with you. And I get a call. I start, I set a call with them. And let's say 70% of the time, I won't ask how they are. And I'll tell them that. I'll say, I'm not going to ask how you are because you're calling me. You need to talk to me. I know you're not doing well. But other than that, how are you doing? But I know these people are unhappy. Well, so one of the things, first off, parenting is just a vulnerability shit show, right? Because vulnerability is (laughs) uncertainty, emotional exposure, and risk. So the moment that we decide or we have a child, we're facing that. And then you have a child with special needs and then you're going to be different and your child's going to be different. And then when you talk about how we're going to be perceived as a family unit, how's my child going to be perceived? Will my child not fit in? Will my child not be, you know, and I, and I see this all the time that where families can be less tolerant 
with a child with a disability because they don't know how to handle it, like what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, so a kid maybe, especially, you know, like kid with autism, maybe humming or maybe disruptive. And so the social circle may not know how to cope with that. And so then the parents are like, oh, see, we don't fit in. And there's that that perception piece and how we want to be perceived and how we don't want to be perceived is the ultimate shame trigger. And shame is, I am bad. You know, we're broken. There's something wrong with us. We don't belong here. It's not safe. And when you have a child with special needs, I think all of that gets even heightened more so because, I mean, I deal with that with kids who don't have special needs with parents, right? When they get triggered because they don't feel that they fit in or, you know, that they, right. they're, they're in their shame storms. But right. on top of that. I think a couple things I would add are absolutely there is this struggle. You give birth to a baby and you're like so excited. And then at some point you you get this diagnosis or you you think something's not right and uh, how do you how do you determine what all of that is and then you get this scary medical diagnosis or or a mental health diagnosis or or something and you do you think oh my gosh my kid is my kid is broken and i've had families describe to me there's kind of a you know it's almost like a death what some diagnoses become like a death for that parent because they every time we give birth we just think of happy healthy baby i'm going to be a grandma in you know when my kids in my their 20s and 30s cuz they're going to start having their own kids and and then you see a different path has to be taken by not just the family but that child and i think also part of what happens for families is they start to really feel sad and anxious about how the world's going to treat their child as their child grows up into adulthood. They struggle with how their kid is at school and and their friends. One of the single greatest things that I think brings a parent to tears is not getting invited to birthday parties. I mean, we think it's so silly, but I've talked to families that that is the trigger for like a very logical, rational, reasonable parent being brought to their knees in tears. Like just the reminder that their child was different, so different that other kids didn't want them coming to their birthday party. And their parents, you know, at a young age, couldn't even convince them to invite that child. So it's, there's so many struggles that families have. I hope through the work that I do with them that I help minimize at least one struggle while they're in the K-12 system. I know I can't help them deal with all of this because there's so much else out there, but I feel like if I can help them in one way, that helps empower them. So it's interesting the way you use words. It makes me think about what I do. I talk to parents a lot about, and I'll say the category who I find struggle potentially the most are families who have a child with a mental health condition that you don't see, you don't really hear, and it's a lot internal for that child. And as those mental health conditions are triggered and you see really poor coping skills, parents don't know a lot of other parents who have a kid like that. And I find myself saying to to families, I know a lot of you. 
you're not alone. You are not the only parent who's had to have their kid hospitalized at age 12 because they're attempting suicide. You just don't know them. I do. And I can tell you, you're a normal, regular parent like everyone else. But there is, there's a lot of this like struggle that families have. Now, I feel like I've gotten off topic, but I think I'm still on topic for what you said. It's like, they just, there's so much to struggle with. And yet they are not alone, which just kills me because they're not alone out there. And yet they totally feel in isolation. So again, like if there's anything I can do that helps them, that keeps me going every day. I just have information that other people don't have about something like how mental health might affect a middle school student and in an extreme case, what you might see. And I just happen to know a lot of extreme cases because the people who aren't having the extremes don't need to call me. And thank goodness for that. (laughs) There's only so much for Berta to go around. (laughs) No, no, there's just, you don't, I honestly, you don't want to call me. Like that's, I always think like, nope, maybe they like me because I, in working with me and they think, oh, she's nice, but they don't really, who wants to know a lawyer like me? Nobody does. And I don't blame them. So I, again, it's one of those, it's hard for these families. And I think people in jobs like mine, part of our goal has to be helping families feel like the choices they have to make are okay choices to have to make and to give them some some comfort in knowing they're not alone out there. Mm-hmm. I don't ever say it's going to be okay because I don't know that and I can't confirm that. I hopefully can help them navigate through whatever is going on to keep it as painless as it could be. It's all of the feels that you're talking about. It's all of those things for families and they really should not feel shame, anything like that, because it's just part of the fabric of what our world is. Common humanity is one of the attributes to compassion and compassion is the antidote to shame. And so what's so important is what you've been saying so many times. And again, whether if you're a parent and you're listening and you have a child with special needs or not, or if you have a child with, you know, mental illness or, you know, and mental illness can be a range, right? It could be as subtle as mild depression and it could be, you know, to bipolar. And I can't tell you how many kids I've known that have been diagnosed with bipolar or young adults. One of the things I think a lot of parents do, like we will say that, you know, our teenage children will use the Instagram and do the compare and despair. And a lot of times the parents will compare what they perceive of other families outsides right? And then you add the element of having a kid with special needs or with mental illness, and that heightens it up. And one of the things, as you were talking about mental illness, I was thinking about over the years, there were some families, and this probably just happened last summer, Roberta, where I had a parent say to me, you know, and their kid is in college or after college and said, I wish I had known that it wasn't only my child that was struggling, whether it was with depression or anxiety or, you know, just emotions, the emotional well-being. My kid wasn't the only one. And, you know, we were up, my husband and I were up late in the night or worried about our kid or going to find our kid in the middle of the night. They thought they were the only one. And I'm like, you're not the only one, but there's so much shame around that. Right. Because, and I talk about this all the time on my show, like 
one of the reasons I started this podcast was I had a blended family and I felt like I was failing because I compared my life to Carol Brady from the Brady Bunch, right? I'm like, well, what am I doing wrong? Except she had Alice and I still want an Alice. And her husband was always home and my husband's never home. And, you know, there were never socks on the ground. And in my house, there's always socks all over the place and shoes all over the place, right? But so I was comparing my, my life to a television show. And that is a total shame trigger. And then what do we do as parents? You know, we look at, oh, look at, I mean, even my own kids to this day, they're so amazing with other people. (laughs) Right. Well, and, you know, our age, the young people out there who are our age, you know, we compared it to TV shows. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But people today, and then I'm going to add myself into it. I compare myself to the photos I see on Facebook. You know, our kids are comparing themselves to the TikToks, what they're seeing in different ways. And it's, I think there's more people out there struggling than we ever know. And the big thing that always hits me. So there's a specific category of families I'm going to talk about right now, because it's so salient in my mind on this topic. Families who have a high-performing child, and that child for years struggles with depression or anxiety. And the family, you know, parents are well-educated, so they see and, and try and get their child private, therapeutic, like a therapist. How many kids today can say, I have a therapist, I have a therapist, or I go see my therapist? But that doesn't work all the time. And for kids, when their depression or anxiety peaks so high that like what you're talking about, you were talking about the child, parents who were up looking around for their kid. In my household, I couldn't imagine that my husband and I would be in that position. We may be at some point, but what you just described is a reality for so many families that I work with, and they don't realize that their public schools at some point could be helping them. I had a family and there was a real concern that the child could have been in that nasty Oakland ghost fire because the student left campus and was gone. They didn't find the student until after that weekend was over. And you can imagine you just see these different levels of what parents are having to cope with and they don't think they can turn to anyone. They don't think that they can. They don't even know what help to look for. Or then we get, I represent a fair number of kids whose families have had to put them in residential treatment facilities. And the just amazing decision that is on behalf of a parent to have to say, I can't keep my my kids safe. These are incredible decisions that 97.5% of our population never even think about. And so it's it's just insane and for this one group of families who their kids depression and anxiety really doesn't get to that extreme of a situation until late middle school early high school. 
and they have no idea that their child at some point could be eligible for special education, they are kicking themselves over and over again. Why didn't I get my kid help sooner? Why didn't I do this sooner? Why didn't, you know, I keep thinking if I had done something sooner, maybe they wouldn't have attempted suicide. I just keep thinking, and I tell them over and over again, you did not know this other pieces of information. How could you have acted on it? But for them, it's really, it's traumatizing for families. My heart bleeds for them because it's, it's such an incredible decision And it's just, again, to be brave enough to say, I need to make this call, it's just really sad. And again, like, hopefully I'm able to help navigate a system that they now have to navigate and didn't have a lot of time to prep on what's this system and what can I get. And so I think having someone who has knowledge, it just makes that part of it, that dealing with the school part of it that much easier. At least I hope. Well, and I think you're bringing a really important concept because we aren't meant to go it alone. And this is something that you have, you know, like I would say practice, right? You've done over and over again. And so you know kind of the different pathways and have the agility to pivot and maneuver. Whereas when we're going through something and we're learning a new skill set, it takes up so much brain juice right? And then it's about finding the people who can help us that we trust that has experience in this. Because especially when you're in so much shame, like most of them, I'm sure your parents are, and you know, most parents are in shame because we're all beating ourselves up because it's the hardest thing I think we ever have to do. But to have somebody else say, hey, look, here are different pathways. And this, I think this may be the one that we want to go down for now, right? Or here's been my experience. That can be so just reassuring. It's like, oh, it's not just me. And you hit something that's really, really important because in my community that, you know, basically most people I know, <laughs> and you're included, have a D at the end of their name, right? <laughs> a PhD, <laughs> PhD, an MD, or a JD. Right. And right. You know, one of the things that I've learned over, you know, the, I don't know, 30 some years that I've lived in this community is we had this illusion, if I just work hard enough, if I just, you know, am good enough, then I'll be safe. And then therefore my children will be safe. Right. And then you have a child who's born with special needs or a physical disability, or eventually has a mental illness. And the stigma of mental illness, like, I don't even like to use that term, because it doesn't mean like, like, I have so much hope, like, okay, what support do you need? And how can we help you? And so that you can, you know, feel better, live better. I don't know exactly what the wording is, right? But there's so much shame around mental illness. And, you know, and then I'll just be upfront, like I can struggle with depression, right? Like part of it's, you know, my biology of my family history. And then part of it is, you know, dealing with not suppressing emotions of being an athlete and, you know, being half Asian and not being allowed to feel my feelings, right? In the family of origin I grew up with. And as I have grown up and adulted and gotten older, I've learned how to process my emotions, which helps with that. It's not something that has to be shameful. But one of the things going back to what I was saying before I got sidetracked there was, we think we can protect ourselves by working harder, being smarter, but things do happen. And I, and I think that's the important thing is knowing that it's not because you're a bad parent, things do happen. And then what are the resources 
that or the people and resources can be people, right? Because you're a resource for so many people that you can be brave enough to reach out to and say, hey, I need help. And it doesn't mean you're weak when you're asking for help. Right. Right. So it's a couple of things that are funny. So I tell parents regularly that I'm like a dentist. And if you don't trust me to make good decisions or the right decisions in their mind for their kid, go find another one of me. If I didn't trust my dentist, I wouldn't want them working in my mouth. I fully embrace this concept of trust. Like they need to find trusted sources. When I'm referring families out to service providers or evaluators or schools, one of the things I say to them regularly is, I'm going to give you a handful because just because I like them doesn't mean you do. And you have to trust this person to evaluate your child and make sure you feel like they're doing the right thing. They're accurately assessing your child because when you read that report, your answer needs to be, this describes my kid. And now you're giving me the name for it versus that doesn't really sound like my kid. Who, what kid were you assessing? And so I think the mm-hmm. concept of trust is critical in what I do. And if people at some point decide they're not trusting me, they need to move on. I've had people fire me. I've told you this before. I might not like it, but you know, at, for whatever reason, they decided they needed something different. And that's totally okay. Go for it. Go change that because it's hard enough to have a child. It's hard enough to then have a child who has a disability. It's then triply hard enough to have a child with a disability who's requiring an IEP. And then if you are in that category of a parent of a child who now has a disability, who now is on an IEP, and now they need something significantly different than what you know many of the other students on IEPs need, like you need to trust someone to help you with this because those are four big things that you're kind of the cumulative effect of needing to have people you trust guide you through the process. So I think that's, it's really important in my practice. And I try to be as practical and pragmatic with families so they do trust me. But if they don't, they should find someone they trust because this is just, it's a lot. I think your words of shame are are huge. I think your words of being courageous. I mean, I think parents who stand up to a school system are pretty courageous because it's going against the norm. It's going against what, you know, potentially their upbringing with respect to public schools. I feel lucky that I get to help families. I really do. Like that's my bottom line is I feel really lucky that, that I get to do the job that I do. Is that Um, what fuels you to keep going and doing this hard work? Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Every day of the (laughs) week. Absolutely. And I love, I don't, I mean, it's not like I do this every morning. Like I wake up and I think, oh, I'm going to help some kids today. But knowing that's what I do when I know I've made it that much easier for them to function as a family or when I know that I have done something to make it so that this 15-year-old is going to now be more likely than not to be a functioning adult, you can't stop me from doing this because that gives me a lot of pride. It makes me feel like I finally... 
I am able to accomplish something. And that is magnified when the family I have helped has some type of personal connection to me, which I try not to have because I have to say things like, you know, I just have to talk to parents about things that I can't guarantee a result. And then I feel Mm -hmm. so incredibly bad if they would also be my friend and I wasn't able to get them a good result. So those times when there may be some personal connection to my family and I'm able to help, like puts me over the rainbow even further. I love talking about education. I like knowing what types of services, research, programming, however you want to define it, help kids who have a disability improve their skills. And that is what fuels my days. Because if I can help explain it to a school system, and then that child and that family's life is better, I totally feel lucky. Well, and what I will say about luck is that you also created that, right? Like, there are different things that brought you to do this work, which we probably don't have time to get into today. But like, I don't think luck just happens to us. There's things that occur in our lives. And then you also prepared yourself to be able to do this and and your values are aligned with it. But I want to go to this as you were talking, I wrote down like, okay, courage, like, where do I see, you know, Roberta having courage, and, you know, being this brave woman being this brave leader, because you were leading these families, right? And so the three areas that I wrote down was, you know, courage dealing with the uncertainty, like, as you were talking about, you can't promise any parents the outcome. And it takes a lot of courage to deal with uncertainty. I mean, you look at COVID right now, right? This is where people are really losing it because what we once knew, I mean, they were always illusions anyways, right? Even if you booked a trip to go someplace, it was still an illusion until it happened. But there was so much more certainty that it would happen. We would get on the plane because that's where we're established now in our in our culture. But now, you know, we're not booking trips because we don't know if we can get on that plane. And so it takes a lot of courage to handle uncertainty. So that's one area. The other area that I wrote down was when you talk about, hey, look, if you don't trust me or if we're not a good fit, there's other people to go work with. A lot of people wouldn't have that courage to say, go work with somebody else, especially, you know, you're a lawyer, you're an entrepreneur, right? Like, so people can get into that, especially in a COVID situation, into that scarcity. So that takes courage as well. And then the third area that I identified was it also takes courage to hold the emotions of the families to allow people, and I do this all the time, whether it's at the pool or with my clients, like, you know, if a kid cries because they got second in a race, I'm totally okay with that. And where a lot of parents are can get really upset about it, but it just takes courage to like be okay with the uncomfortable. So those are the three areas I identified. How do you have courage to handle the uncertainty for your clients? So <laughs> I prepare them for the worst. And I remind them they may not like it. And I tell them, like, I think one of the reasons parents do trust me a lot and a lot of parents trust me is because I don't set a high expectation because in my experiences, the losing is always possible and losing is a funding issue. What I say to families is, so let's take an example. Family has to place their child in a particular school program 
because of the struggles their child is having in public school. And they need to seek reimbursement from the public school for it. There's a lot of uncertainty there because the law is not black and white as we'd like it. There's It's objective, but it's you know, determined by humans. And so it's subjective. And I will say to them, you have to know you're making the right decision. And I can kind of flippantly, and again, I say this to them, like I can tell you flippantly, money is just money. You can earn more money. You can go get a third job, but you can't save your kid if they succeed in suicide. So You have to know that the choice you made for your child is the right one. How do you know it? You see the positive changes in your kid. And with that, whatever result we get from the school district is secondary because you are doing what you know is the right thing for your your child. And if we just are unsuccessful in securing that from a school, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt in a financial way, but your child will still be alive and your child is still with you. So I try to manage uncertainty by making sure they know it is realistic. You could lose, but that just means oftentimes, you know, a family is not getting reimbursed. It could also mean that even though the school isn't going to provide a service, doesn't mean you as a family can't do it. So I want them to know with their eyes open that loss is a possibility. And if you go in knowing that, any result above that is a win. And you have to think of it that way. You may not get everything, but again, if they can get enough assistance from the school in whatever capacity so that their family can maintain a service for their child who has a disability, that's a win. I totally understand. They may have to make sacrifices in other parts of their life. If they can still make it work for their family, then that's okay. And again, it goes back to they know they're doing the right thing for their kid. And that's at the, at the end of the day, in my mind, what I hope helps families deal with any uncertainty. Okay. So here's how I'm going to put it in my words is, yeah. <laughs> so yes, like in swimming, right? right? So like in swimming, like the, the worst thing that can happen is a kid can drown, right? And right. so I, I've always explained to my coaches, kids are not allowed to drown here. That would not right. be okay. It'd be bad for business. <laughs> It'd be bad for children. It'd be bad for business. Right, right. <laughs> Lots of things. So, and I too, I won't ever say, even though we have an Olympian on the deck, I won't ever say, oh, your kid can be an Olympian. I will say like, hey, we can teach your kid how to swim. They can be proficient, right? They can swim 300 yards, 10 minutes, and so that they can go to Hawaii and go scuba diving and and be fine. But so what I've learned from COVID and from like the big phrase that I've really taken from is to mitigate risk. So it's like, mm-hmm. I know I'm going to, get kids across the pool. I'm not quite sure how we're going to do it because every kid is different, right? And I have different tools that I can pull out and we can figure out and and and, and keep practicing it. But we're going to mitigate the risk. And pre-COVID, it used to be a coach would be in the water on the first day. That's no longer <laughs> allowed, right? right? So so now it's sometimes like, and I've told people recently, uh, right now is not a good time to come and start in swimming with us because we can't mitigate that risk. So it sounds like what you do is, you know, when you talk about managing uncertainty, it's like, okay, the money, right? Like, as you said, and I always say money is a math problem. It's just this thing. It's not, we, we tie so much of our worthiness and there's so much emotion to money, but money is just a math problem. But you're talking about a human problem and what are the things that we can do to 
help your child improve. And those are the things to pay attention to and be aware of, because as you say, it's like suicide, suicide or drowning. You can't turn back from those, right? So I appreciate that because when the uncertainty, we need courage to get through uncertainty. And I think what happens so much is people get stuck in fear because they look at the suicide or they look at the drowning and then they just stop because it's, it's fight, flight, or freeze, right? And you have to look at where you're trying to go, not knowing exactly where you're going to land. And that part's really important. Okay, so that's the first part of the courage. Okay, so now let's talk about the courage that you have in being able to let a client go. So kind of not just how I personally feel, but in the context of the health of my business. So I'm just going to be a little nice to myself right now. You know, I've run my business for 16 years. I have no business classes under my belt. And one of the realities that I've learned as both working for a firm before and now being on my own, I can't help everyone. My personality does not meet everyone. My personality from 15 years ago as a lawyer is very different than my personality today as a lawyer. And maybe someone would have loved me 15 years ago, but today my my style is different. And I have, I'm going to say it's my, my parents have had, they raised me to just feel confident when I'm prepared and I know what I'm doing. And still, people may not want that. They, again, they may want a different lawyer, which is totally fine. Definitely now at this point, when I opened my office 16 years ago, I was petrified. No one would hire me. But having families refer their close friends, having families who administrators refer their close friends to me, makes me build my confidence that, yes, I can't make it. I can't be everything to everyone. But there are a lot of people out there who I do work for, who do understand and appreciate and are willing to continue working with me. Am I always worried about making sure I have enough clients? Yes. Any small business owner is always worried about that. But the more I stick with what I do, how I treat families, how I treat every family, whether it's a single parent, it's grandparents, it's two parents, both parents are the same sex, there's four parents involved, it doesn't matter what skin color they are, or because none of that in my mind has any significance to their IEP and what services their child needs. So as long as I treat them all the same way, enough of them will say, that's, I trust her. I trust her and it's okay. And so I was lucky 16 years ago that my husband stood behind me to open up my office. And we made a choice as a family that it would be okay for me to try this. And it's been successful my definition of success, it's been successful. I feel largely it's successful, but I try to do, for me, it's consistency. I got to keep things constant. I send out bills every month. I'm sure people hate that, but I send them out every month because I knew I needed to do these things. So there's some things that just, as I keep them constant, it helps buffer the uncertainty and it continues to give me the courage to say, I understand you're unhappy. It's really fine go find another lawyer. Or 
when they come in as an initial referral and they're really just not a match for what I might be able to help them with, giving them referrals and not feeling bad about it because there's enough families who need assistance that as long as I stay the course of what I do and what my office does, I should continue in the trajectory I'm in. I am at the end of the day, always prepared that it falls apart tomorrow, which is why I jokingly tell everyone, although it's not really a joke, that I have like 17 retirement jobs. Part of it is also sounds like what, what do you focus on, right? You focus and, and you have a lot more evidence because you've been doing this longer, but you focus on the people that you can help and then trusting, like just as you ask your clients to trust who they work with, you're trusting that if not this person, then there's going to be somebody else that's going to come through the door that you get the opportunity to, to help. Yes. Absolutely. I feel lucky. And I think I feel lucky because this is the only type of law I ever would have practiced. And I did everything in my power to get as much experience when I was in law school to be able to do this type of work. And I found a firm and worked with them for five years. And those were invaluable. And so I'm lucky, but absolutely did I make choices along the way to ensure that I could do this? Absolutely. I did not sit around when I realized finally in my mid-20s what I wanted to do with my life. I then took very clear action to get there. And I just try to stay, you know, consistent and moderate because I can't keep up with, oh, I told Susie something over here. And then I told Jane this over here. And like, I can't manage all of that chaos that would be created in my head. So mm -hmm. if I know, I always talk to parents in the same way, try to explain things in the same way, try to do things in the same way. I think it's also comforting to them because then they can talk to their friends or family or whomever else has worked with me and they're hearing the same thing. This is just the same thing she said. This was the result we got. This was the result we got. They might be totally different results. We went through the same process and both of those families with different results are still happy with that result. So again, I feel lucky, but I absolutely acknowledge I took active steps to make sure I do what I can every day to continue to be employed in this profession. So again, like when we talk about, like, I think about what feeds our courage, right? And so we, and you've talked about this, I'm going to help kids today and how like that for you is a really great focus on what you do. And then the preparation that you did to do the work that you do. And then the other thing that's coming up for me as I'm listening to you speak is you're in line with your own integrity, right? You are being consistent day in and day out. And that then allows you to fuel your being courageous, both as a lawyer advocating for your clients, you know, building trust, which takes a lot of courage to be able to cultivate trusting relationships and for you to have the courage within yourself to say, okay, this is work that I can do and I get to do and I'm going to mm -hmm. keep going at it. I'll tell you, I don't know what triggered when you were talking, but one of the most exciting things for me, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. So like, oh, there's something new. And I feel like every day is new, which is also something keeps me engaged. But over the last like two to three years, I have actually been able to work more with 
my teen clients. So most of my work is with family, with parents. I'm talking to mom, talking to dad, I'm talking to grandma, grandpa, you know, most of my dealings. But if a couple years ago, I did some student trainings. My assistant will say, I can tell you like, you know, when you get to directly work and talk with a high school student who has a disability about what the laws are that protect them. She says, I can tell you love it because you can't stop talking about it. And I think that's what happens for me is when I find what I really like, I have to keep going on it because it does bring me such immense happiness to see I'm helping them. I'm helping them and to see not just I can help parents, but these these young, soon-to-be adults, I'm helping shape their ability to advocate for themselves. For me, it's incredible and I love it. And I, I just, I don't know why I did a tangent on you on that, but there was something you said, which I can't remember, that just flagged my brain. Like another thing that keeps me going is it's, I get to do so many different things and I get to see the result of helping families. And and then really excitedly for me, helping their young adults help their parents make decisions for them. It's the coolest to me. And again, I'm sorry. I know there was a t- there was a reason that popped in you. my head when you were talking and I can't remember why. So what I wrote down is happiness is your fuel for courage. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yes. Because if I didn't love this, I couldn't do it. I go to meetings where 95% of the people in the room can't stand me and don't want to be nice to me. Like I am just so, <laughs> so, so getting, you know, seeing that I'm making a big impact absolutely fuels my fire. It, to me, this is so powerful. Having a 16 year old say to me, this is where I want to go to school. Like I'll damn near do anything to help that kid get there and get it funded. Because if, if a 16 year old can tell me I want to go to school there. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm willing to put in the work. Uh, why wouldn't I support that kid? <laughs> oh my gosh. That like they're taking control of something that typically kids just go where their parents tell them to go or what they're going to do. And I have someone telling me I want to be at this school and I want to learn. Get out of my way because there's nothing that will stop me from helping that kid. And I love, I mean, we can feel your excitement and your joy. And I think this is so important because I ask clients this a lot of what do you need to do to fuel your courage? Because we need to be courageous to show up and live our lives and really like use the, the gifts that we each of us have to contribute. Right. And so if it's excitement it's, and if it's happiness and you get to help empower a teenager, like I mean, part of me is like, God bless you. And I'm not even a religious person because most people <laughs> don't even like teens, right? Like, I, I, like teens aren't like my favorite age group to coach. You know, I, I, it's not right. my favorite thing, but anyone who wants to work with teens, I'm like, we need you. They need you. And if that's what jazzes you up, like, and, and that's right. a part of it, that's awesome because we all need to be able to fuel ourselves, to be able to sustain in the hard work. And you said something that's really, really important, right? Because you said you walk into rooms where 95% of the people don't like you. 
And that takes so much courage, especially I think as women who we've been, you know, socially programmed, culturally programmed, you need to be nice. You need to be accommodating. You need to be well-liked. You need to be popular in order to be good enough. Right. And of course, you're not going to be well-liked, especially when you're going in and suing school districts. And it takes so much courage. And I think people forget that, that it does take courage. So then how are you going to fill yourself up so you can walk into that room? Right. So again, for me, if I was walking in there for my daughter, the words couldn't come out of my mouth. I'd be so emotional about it. Mm -hmm. I know this. I've had to help her with some things that it will bring me to tears Mm -hmm. thinking of having to stand up in a meeting and really fight. And so I think I'm a pretty rational person. I'm a pretty level-headed person. And if I can take that job for parents so they can just sit there and breathe and just get through that meeting and bring up their concerns and I help them do that, I don't have to go home and say to their, you know, it's not my daughter I'm going home to and saying, yeah, your teacher just said that you you aren't motivated in class and they don't care about your dyslexia. I don't have to look at that face and say something like that. I can sit there and do it for them. I can do the best I can to help, a, again, kind of going back to what I said at the beginning, helping a family navigate the system. Because it's going to be so much easier for me to do as an objective third party, which I'm totally not objective typically because at some point I fall in love with the family or I think they're just the coolest family or however you want to say it. So I become less objective, but I know my role in those meetings is to be objective. And I do things to give families a sense of power in those meetings. I have to. Because families are a part of this process and they need to feel strong and powerful as they're going through it. And I want them to feel that way. And if having me there, keeping everyone in line, absolutely, that's what I'll do. And I've got to get over whatever hang up because my daughter doesn't have to go back into Susie's class tomorrow. So they can take all all their anger on me and let this family work through and protect this kid because the kid's got to be at school for 30 plus hours a week. So take it all out on me. Hate me all you want. Don't take it out on this family or this kid. And I think that's part of why I can walk into those meetings knowing and actually hoping that if there's going to be someone anyone hates at the meeting, it's going to be me. I'm not the one who deals with them day to day. And it's better that I take on that quote, bad cop role, I'll say so that the student can continue at that school site with the least amount of disruption because your parents were jerks to us or whatever they want to say. Let them take it out on me. Take out all of that so that this family can navigate, this kid can learn in as safe of an environment as possible. So when you're talking about they can take out the hate, you mean the administrators or the teachers? Yeah. That. Just if, if if I have to say, I think they're not doing a good job, let me be it. Let me mm-hmm. be the one. Let them say, how, let them get angry at me. You're just a lawyer. How do you know this? Let them take out their frustration on me because I don't go home to that kid that day. Well, so when I was talking about you having courage to hold the emotions of the family, it's not even the families. It's the adversaries, right? The school districts, mm-hmm. the teachers, the administrators. So you're holding those. So 
there's a lot of courage when you walk into these rooms because you have this family, this client that's you've taken on, and then you've got this district that, you know, you're going up against. And so there's a lot of emotions. And so it sounds like because of the work that you do and how it's so important for you to help kids, that fuels that courage where you understand that, Hey, you can, you can hate me and that's okay. I don't have to be well liked. Don't take it out on this child here. Right. So here's a funny little side story. So when I was a baby lawyer, I represented this family in kind of a remote part of California. And so small school district, after we filed the administrative hearing against this district, the superintendent went to this family's house and said, you know, like, we just got this filing and, you know, your lawyer, she's a shark and all she does is sue public schools. And the family was like, absolutely. That's why we hired them. (laughs) So, yes, take out your anger on me. I'm the one who is doing this. It's hard. I'm sure my family doesn't like that. I come home exhausted because I've had to deal with people just dealing with the adversarial nature of my work. But yeah, absolutely. Take it out on me. Apparently that superintendent thought it would be persuasive to this family that, oh my gosh, this person just sues school districts where this family was like, absolutely. Why would we go to someone else? (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of that and taking out on the family, because that, I mean, that is the, and, and I, this, my family would say the same thing, right? I take on the emotions of so many people and the cost tends to go to myself and to my family. So what do you do for fun? <laughs> I love going walking and I don't like walking by myself because it's not as much fun. I like to chat with my friends walking. I love to bake. I love baking. And I used to do more jewelry and I have to get back into doing making bracelets or just something that is enjoyable. And then this is just goofy, but One of my favorite things is my family and I going to the beach for like a beach community for a weekend and being able to just walk around and do nothing and be silly with each other. And I'll say, again, kind of dorky, but I'm reminded of it by last night. You know, you eat dinner with your family as much as you can. Some nights are not as good at the dinner table as others, but the nights when our family is laughing hysterically at the table is probably one of my best nights ever. You could take me to the Sydney Opera House and it would hold no candle to sitting at the table and having my daughter, my husband, and I laughing about the stupidest things. So a lot of my fun revolves around my family, my friends, and just doing things that I enjoy. The baking I do a lot, I do a lot with my daughter. We typically bake the entire day after Thanksgiving, and she and I love it. In fact, I think I might be one of the only people she can bake with because she's okay with my alterations to recipes. She's not okay with most other people's. So yeah, that's those are the things. And I'm smiling hugely right now. So I know those are the things I do really enjoy. 
So connections with people. Yep. Connections with people. And I think that's a really, again, it goes back to like what you were saying in the very beginning of this interview of, you know, you're not the only one and you don't have to go it alone. And the connections with people, I mean, that is so important and probably been more heightened now during this period of COVID for everybody. But hopefully the listeners can take away, we aren't weak by needing others, by wanting to be connected with others and really figuring out what fills you up so that you can go be courageous in your life. Yep. Roberta, my friend, thank you so much for being on my show today. (laughs) Thank you. This is perfect timing. (laughs) This is fun. Wasn't that great? Oh my gosh. I loved it. And I loved how you could feel how much Roberta loves what she does and the happiness and the excitement and the joy that she gets. And it's also a really hard job. I mean, remember something that she said, she walks into rooms where 95% of the people time people don't like her. And years ago, I had said on the show that I finally realized I was the most hated and most liked person. Like I have a line for the most hated and I have a line for the most liked and or most loved and, and that's okay. And you get to pick your line that you want to be in. And it takes a lot of courage to be accepting of that. So I hope Roberta's story gives you some insight into what it takes to have courage and how you can fuel yourself to do the hard things that we want to do in our lives and that you're not the only one. And a couple things that I want to just reiterate on is this idea of shame, right? And I want to say this again, how we want to be perceived and how we don't want to be perceived are shame triggers. And so when we become attached of like, oh, well, I want people to think like, I've got it all together. My family is, you know, loving and kind in the Brady Bunch. That's a shame trigger because I know the truth is my family's not the Brady Bunch. So how you want to be perceived and how you don't, and when we can let go of that and just allow yourself to be who you are, the brilliance parts of you and the messy parts of you and all of you, and not abandon yourself, but stand with all parts of you because we have it all. Often I say my life is amazing. I live this amazing life and there's shit shows everywhere. And that's really the truth. And some days, honestly, during COVID, I was like, one of my clients, (laughs) we got on the call and she's like, I don't like my life. I go, I'm right there with you. I don't like my life. She's like, you're my coach. I'm like, today, not really liking my life. (laughs) Own it all. It is messy. We are humans. We are imperfect creatures. So embrace that. So remember, right? We don't, we don't need to add more shame to our feelings. So letting go of how you want to be perceived. And by how do you let go is you own it. Like, oh yes, I want to be seen this way. And then remind yourself, but you don't want to abandon all of you. You want to love all of you. And you don't have to be just one part of you. That's only the perfect put together. You get to be it all. The other thing that she talked about that I think is so, so important is remember, she's a civil rights attorney and she's a badass. Like she's really sought after, like she kind of played herself down. She's a badass. Like people want to work with her. She did makes jewelry. And that's so important because so often we can say, oh no, I just have to work harder and I, I need to know more and I need to do more. And she does art and she bakes. And that's part of filling herself up so that she can go and do this courageous work that she does. Now, 
if you're sitting there going, but Corinne, or you're walking along and you're listening, but Corinne, she does really important work. She's a civil rights attorney. She's helping kids. Like I just do X. Like, and I've done that. Like, oh, I'm just a swim coach. What am I really doing? I'm just a swim coach of a bunch of privileged kids. Never discount what you are doing, whether you're raising your kids, that's really important work, right? What you are doing, maybe you're a teacher, that's really important. Maybe, you know, you're leading a team in Silicon Valley. That's really important. Not because there's some, you're working for some brand name company, but you're helping other people, right? You're helping them contribute to whatever the goal, the mission, the engineering project may be so that you guys can solve whatever problems that may be solving. We want to be able to use the gifts that we have, the skills that we have to be able to contribute so that we can all rise up together, right? Roberta has skill sets and she has things and knowledge that she has that helps other families rise up. And one of the things that she says is she wants to give her clients a sense of power, right? And she really wants to empower those teens and be able to help them advocate for them. You know, when they get clear what they want, help them get to that side. So never discount something that will fill you up as being tedious. I did that for a really long time. I was like, oh, I can't pay attention to music because I'm really busy working. I can't do this because that's really tedious. What fills you up so you can be courageous? This fall, the thing that has really filled me up that has been fun for me was giving myself permission to watch the Marvel series, the movies. And there's this anal part of me that's like, because I can't remember movies for the life of me. I can't remember if I've seen them. My family drives my family crazy. I don't care. It's entertainment. It comes in. I let it go. So I can't remember, you know, when you wait a year and you go to the movie theater. And there's so many different Avenger movies. I can't remember. But so this fall, I decided I gave myself permission on Labor Day. And I said, you know what? I am done. I don't have any more capacity. What do I want to do? And I was like, I want to watch an Avenger movie. And so I started, I think, with the Iron Man, not an Avenger movie, a Marvel movie. And then I thought, oh, I need to watch it in order because there's like this perfectionist in me. And then I started going, I want to watch Civil War, Captain America, right? I don't want to have to watch whatever the next thing was. And so I, I was like, okay, go ahead and watch it. And so I was kind of watching it in order, but then I started to go, ooh, but my brain would, or my insides would say, but Corinne, this is really what you want to watch next. And I gave myself permission to read out of order. Or I recently just got this new book and it's, very thick book with lots of small writing. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot. And I was like, I just want to know the answers at the end. And so I read the conclusion. (laughs) And again, the rule follower me wouldn't normally do that. But I said, I want to read this. And then I'll go back and read the whole book. But I wanted that night. I got the book. I was so excited. I wanted to get some information. So what fills you up so you can be courageous? What do you need? Not from a graspy place, but like, what do you need to fill yourself up so you can be courageous in your life? Those are the things I invite you to consider and I hope you walk away with. The other is, she mentioned it briefly. She said, like when she was talking about her practice and she said, for her, it's successful. And I've always talked about for years about you get to define what success looks like right? And and it's really important that you get clear what is success. You can always change it. You can say, this is what success 
is for me. And then when you get there, it's like trying on a pair of shoes. Does it really feel the way I thought it would? Does it work for me? Do I like it? Do I enjoy it? Right. And you get to tweak it. It's always a a rough draft or it's a, it's something in process, but you get to define it. And then also remember what Roberta said. It's those small moments, right? She said, I could be at the Sydney opera house, but really when her and her husband and her daughter can sit around the dining room table and laugh about something silly that fills her up. And what I know is my clients will say that over and over again, those small moments, allow yourself to fill up with those small moments of joy because we need more joy, especially right now. And that will help you sustain you so that you can go out and do courageous and brave work and then give yourself a break from courageous and brave work. So whether it's making art, whether it's baking, spending time with friends in whatever COVID safe way you can, I have to put that disclaimer out there, watching Marvel movies, whatever it may be, give yourself that break because we can't be courageous 24 seven and we don't need to be. So then fill yourself back up so that you can go out and be brave once more. All right, my friend, I'm smiling really big for you. Hey there, before we go, I have a question for you. Have you subscribed to the show yet? This is an awesome opportunity for you to preserve your brain juice. I love the fact that I can subscribe to podcasts and television shows and they go straight to my iPhone or they go straight to my DVR and then I don't have to worry of, oh no, especially with television shows. Did I hit record? Is it going to be there? Or now do I have to watch it on demand and go through all the commercials? So go and hit the subscribe button. There's a link in the show notes and that will ensure you that you never miss a show and you can also save your brain juice for other things in your life. There's way more important things, but you and I will still be connected because the show will be waiting for you in your phone. Go to the link in the show notes, subscribe to the show so you can automatically get all the shows to your phone. On a lake, she is dreaming. She is drifting, never been so wide awake.